You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Fear causes us to do crazy things sometimes. Some of you have heard this story because you've been at Grace a number of years. I checked and I told this story some years ago. So if you remember this, you get a gold star because you actually remembered something from a sermon. But many years ago, um, I lived in White City. For a little background on those of you who don't know me, my dad was a construction superintendent and we would move every four to five years. And I've lived virtually everywhere in the state. I am a native Oregonian. I've never lived out of state, but I've lived everywhere, coast, central Oregon, here, and southern Oregon. And uh, we lived in a little town called White City when I was um, in my younger years. And in White City at the time, um, where we lived was this five-acre plot that was kind of out in the country. And the houses were really spread out. And as a little kid growing up, there's, there's not a lot to do in the country. So you kind of walk around and hang out with my, my big black lab dog named Claude. And Claude and I would hang around and walk around. And I did have a friend who lived two houses up. But again, because we lived so far away from each other, I didn't get to see him very often. He was two, three years older than I was. And I'll never forget this one day where my friend and I are out playing and walking around and throwing rocks and what have you. And we saw a car begin to come down our road because there was one road that connected all of our homes and it was a long country road. So when a car was coming, you could see it from a long ways away. And so this car materialized on the road and we didn't get a lot of traffic out there. And so here comes this car and my friend noticed that it's a police car. And he said, hey, that's a police car. And I looked and sure enough, it was. And he said, yeah, they're, they're coming for you. What do you mean they're coming for me? Yeah, they're coming for you. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. Now, it's not rational, but somehow I internalized that in my little kid brain that they really were coming for me. And all of a sudden, I was very afraid. And so I said, I'm going to throw rocks at it. And he said, I'm not. And so I walked over to the shoulder of the road, and, and this police car kept getting closer and closer, and I picked up this handful of rocks. And being a country kid, I had a pretty good arm, threw rocks a lot. And I drilled him. I let him have it just as soon as he passed by. Chipped his windshield, chipped the passenger um, uh, glass of the side door there, and punctured his light bar on the top of his car in several places. And he just stopped, and he looked at me. And I ran. So I ran as far to the far end of our five acres as I could get. And to this day, I don't know how it worked out this way. It was a little scary how this resolved itself. But the officer, after a long pause, backed the car up to the next house that was about an eighth of a mile, quarter of a mile down the road, which was our neighbor's on the other side of the road. And my parents happened to be in my neighbor's yard talking with our neighbors. I have no idea how this officer knew those were my parents. But he went and talked to them. And I know for good reasons, you know, we, 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 we talk about this a lot in parenting circles, and regardless of what side you land on or not, I got spanked that day. <laughs> and I think I deserved it. Fear makes us do crazy things. And we hear a story like that, and we legitimately ask ourselves, who in the world would throw rocks at a police car? And those of you who know me go, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. I can see Jay doing that. 
But reasonably, rationally, we would say, who does something like that? Who makes that kind of choice? And we come to a story just like that in the book of Genesis today. Because if you'll remember last week, God comes to Abram, and he calls Abram to leave everything, is, everything that's familiar, everything that's comfortable, everything he's ever known, even to leave some of his extended family and to go, and he does not tell him where he's going. He just makes a series of promises to him. And what we began to see is this amazing blossoming of this relationship now between Abram and his God. Presumably, he worshipped many gods prior to this, but now he worships the one true God, Yahweh, and we see this growing intimacy, this growing understanding of, of who this God is and what his promises mean. And now we come to the middle of this amazing chapter, chapter 12, and it seems like Abraham forgets all of it. And he makes choices that to many of us, probably all of us, we would go, how in the world did you get there? Because he is now going to have this new relationship with God, this new faith and trust in God tested by his circumstances. And how does he do? And what can we learn from him? If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 12. Turn on your tablet or your phone, however you get there. Genesis 12.10. I'll put it up on the screen here and read it to you. And then we'll walk our way back through the passage. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, camels, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me, he said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, she's my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. So we're told that there was a famine in the land. And in an agrarian culture, that is big trouble. That is an enormous crisis. Because no food, no livestock. No livestock and no food. No food for you. This is a very dire situation. And Abram and everybody in the land are in a, in a very difficult place. 
I've told you that I've lived all over the state. The one place I haven't lived is Eastern Oregon, but I know it pretty well because I have so many family on my dad's side of the family who are dryland wheat farmers or ranchers. And even though I've never lived that life, I've been close enough to that life to know that a famine is a big deal. Lack of rain, how that affects the crops, how that ripples through the whole community, how that affects livestock, it's a huge, huge deal. And you don't have to experience that to understand that this is a genuine, legitimate crisis. And so what's Abram going to do about it? So it says he went down to Egypt. So good thing or bad thing? Well, logically, Egypt was where the water was. The Nile River flowed through Egypt when in that arid climate, there was a famine, there was a drought, there was a lack of rain. There was always water in Egypt. They had resources that the rest of the Middle East, ancient Near East, didn't have. So, of course, you go down to Egypt, right? So that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, at the very least, a dangerous thing because some very deliberate foreshadowing is going on in this story. For those of you who know the Exodus story, who, who know your Bibles, you probably caught all sorts of symbolism and foreshadowing and imagery to the Exodus in this passage, and that's by design. Because remember with me, when God's people are faced with another famine, they will go to Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, this very book we're in, and we'll get there in some months, and their lives will be saved because they go to Egypt. But they will find themselves in a very difficult place as a result. So really, what Egypt in this story represents is security. Abram's going there because God told him to, right? In fact, we see the verse. Well, we actually don't. Maybe I missed that. Here, hold on a minute. Because what I put up on the screens here is what's in your Bible and my Bible. Mm, yeah, it's not here either. And that's the point. Abram made this choice on his own. Nowhere does it say he sought God, he listened to God, he asked God, he saw, and he acted without consulting God. And I think that's the point here. The point at this point isn't so much the destination. In the future, Post-Exodus, Egypt is going to be a very bad place for God's people to go, and they will go there again and again and get themselves in all sorts of trouble. But at this point in the Genesis story, in this story of history, the point isn't so much the destination as it is the process. God never asked, I mean, excuse me, Abram never asked God if he should go or not. And that's how he responds to this crisis. And I think there's something there for us. You and I will have challenges that will come into our lives that will challenge our faith. Last week, we looked at the reality that Abram is an incredible example of faith, but there will be challenges to your faith and mine because Jesus said there would. Did he not say in John 16, in this life you will have trouble? Trouble is coming your way and mine. It is not an issue of if. It is an issue of when. And I think famines in our life, quote-unquote, really represent crises, crises that happen. Not just things that happen 
and last a little while, but crises that endure. Famines usually were not short affairs. They were usually quite lengthy, and they were very significant. So this is, I think, things for you and me like a new boss that you get who is entirely unreasonable, who you just don't get along with. This is the neighbor who lives next to you, and they are a thorn in your side. You are constantly having to navigate difficult things with them. This is extended family that you have who cross boundaries, who offer opinions when they're not sought, who involve themselves in ways that are not welcomed in your life. This is marital difficulties that you may be enduring where there is no quick fix and this is hard and it's, it's difficult and it's not going away. Or it's the friend in your life who for some reason, you don't know what you did but somehow you've wronged them and they're not willing to talk about it and there's distance there or financial difficulties that come your way and there's no easy way out. You get the gist of this. Those crises are going to come into your life and mine and they are going to challenge our faith. So where's God when that happens? Let's go back to our story. Where are God's promises for Abram? I mean, didn't God promise to provide for him? To bless him? to protect him? I would submit to you the trouble in this story is not the trouble. The trouble is with Abram's heart. The danger isn't from without, really. The true danger is what happens from within. He takes matters into his own hands without consulting God. And let's see where that gets him. Who says that their wife is actually their sister? Who is it that throws rocks at police cars? Not people who are thinking rationally. And what happens? He says that she is his sister, and Pharaoh believes him. And then takes Sarai into his harem, into his palace. You know, every effective lie has a kernel of truth in it. And there's actually a kernel of truth in this one. We know from Genesis chapter 11 that Sarai was his half-sister. Same dad, but different mother. So this is kind of true. And anyone who lies gets that, that an effective lie has some truth in it. I learned this as a little brother. I had older sisters. I was the youngest in the family. I knew how to get them into trouble. I knew how to paint things and say things and pitch things so that it looked like they were responsible or they were the ones. And I didn't have to go to school to learn that. No one taught me that. I intuitively knew how to be a little brother. And anyone who has ever had a little brother knows all little brothers at some point know how to do that. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Amen. Okay, sisters, the same is true for you. Because we all start out in the same place. We all start out broken, right? We do. Proof that we have a sin nature. Every single one of us, we know how to lie. And man, look how quickly Abram sells his wife up the river. Is this good for Abram? Yeah. Saves his life. Is he looking out for Sarai? No. Puts her life at risk. Is he looking at Lot, who by inference is with him as well? No. Puts Lot at risk too. Why would anyone make this kind of choice? Because of fear. He is afraid. 
Now let's go here for a minute. What is the most repeated command in all of Scripture? Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because we tend to. So let's take that for a test drive for a minute. Does Abram have legitimate reason to be afraid? Yes. He does. That famine was a true crisis. It was something to be afraid of. There are legitimate fears that we have. Okay, so why does God then say, do not fear? In fact, let's take it a step further. Actually, God says we should fear. Let's really confuse things. And let's try to sort this out here for just a little bit. In Exodus chapter 20, when God has freed the people from Egypt and brings them to the promised land, before he brings them there, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he himself descends, his presence manifests itself, and there's smoke and fire and thunder and it's this incredibly awesome, amazing sight. God is there. The people are at the base of the mountain and this is what Moses says to them, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. We should fear God. And by that, meaning we should reverence him, we should honor him, we should be loyal to him. God is not your homeboy. He is not your divine consultant. He is not the divine life coach, the great life giver. He's not our pal. He's God. But, He is the God who wants us to know him and to love him. And that fear should keep us from disobeying him, wronging him, wronging others. That's the whole impetus behind this. But notice, in addition to telling us we should fear, it says do not fear. In this context, it's don't be afraid of God in the sense that he's gonna wipe you out, he's gonna zap you. That's not what this is about. How many things in our lives are fears that are irrational? They're what-ifs. They're worst-case scenarios. So how do we put all this legitimately together without uncorking more than we can, you know, solve here? Okay, God tells us do not fear. But that does not mean don't experience fear, don't feel fear. I believe what that means for you and me is don't let our fears debilitate us. Don't let them master us. Don't let them control us, whether they're legitimate or not, because faith is not the absence of fear. It's what you do in the face of it. And if you need to see the example of that, and there are many men and women of faith who live this out in the pages of Scripture, let's go to the example, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew's account. Was Jesus afraid? Absolutely. He, it says he sweated drops of blood. He was so afraid, so anxious, because he had a pretty good idea of what was coming, but he chose faith over fear. Doesn't mean he didn't feel fear. Doesn't mean he wasn't experiencing fear. It means he chose to not let his fears master him. Instead, he chose trust and obedience. It means when we are going toe-to-toe with fears, legitimate or illegitimate, we choose to trust and listen to God. So what are you afraid of? What 
What fears are you going toe-to-toe with this morning? Are you listening to God? Are you seeking God with those? Are you taking those to God? Are you believing the promises of God in the face of those? Because Abram did none of those things. Instead, he chose to try to escape his fears. And so he he runs to Egypt. And this has lots of different looks in our lives. There are lots of different Egypts. In fact, as we get deeper into God's word and deeper into human history, we will see that God's people will be tempted to run to Egypt instead of trusting him and trusting his promises. And it is a cycle that will repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself. So what do our Egypts look like? Well, one of them is denial. One of the ways we escape crisis or difficulty in our life is we just pretend it's not there. And that works for a while. Or we choose distraction. We so busy ourselves, we're so constantly in motion, or we throw ourselves into our work, that again, we don't face into our fears, we try to escape them. Or we just try to cope with them by anesthetizing ourselves. So we turn to alcohol, or we turn to food, or you fill in the gap, you fill in the blank of what could go there. Boy, in our culture now, and this is one of my Egypts, to be quite honest with you, is electronics. Out comes the phone. On turns Netflix, on, you know, whatever it is. And of course those things have their place. Understand that. But, but how often do we look to those as a means of escape? Or we just escape by escaping. We isolate ourselves. We withdraw. I was talking with someone between services about the temptation to do that. And you know, I just recently read an article from one of our medical doctors who worships here who put it into my hands last week that more than ever, we are a lonely people, especially in our culture, which is so ironic. In this day and age when we're so interconnected through social media, when we have so many mediums to, to know other people and to be known by others, it only goes so far. In fact, one out of every two Americans in poll after poll and survey after survey right now says, yeah, I feel lonely. And by that meaning, I don't have really any meaningful relationships in my life where I'm known and know someone else. Not really. And there'll be some who will be podcasting and listening to this. And of course, if you're in between church homes, if you're sick, if you're on vacation, if for whatever reason you can't come to this type of community, that's totally understandable, but there will be folks who will be listening to this who, quite honestly, they're listening to this because they've isolated themselves deliberately from the community of God because they're afraid in one way or another that they're gonna be hurt or wronged or, again, you fill in the blank. But is that really what God wants for us? Again, what is your Egypt? What is mine? What are we running to rather than going to God? Because the reality is, despite Abram's broken choices, despite his selfishness in trying to save his own skin, despite the fact he put Sarai and Lot, not to mention some of the very promises God gave him at risk, 
God blesses him anyway. Did you catch that in this passage? It's, it's remarkable. It says that Pharaoh gave him sheep, cattle, male, female, donkeys, servants, camels. I mean, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, this was wealth. Land, which God has already given him but, and promised to him, but livestock, servants, gold, silver, and camels. The equivalent of getting a camel in that day and age because they weren't being domesticated hardly at all at that point in human history was like someone giving you or I a limo. I mean, Abram is now fabulously rich. So wealthy, in fact, that as we'll see next week, those very riches, those very resources, that very blessing of God and wealth that he's given to him is now gonna cause conflict between him and Lot. And we'll come back to that next week but we also see more imagery that points to the exodus so we're not told how pharaoh figured out that these plagues which is another word for diseases same word that's used in the exodus were being caused by sarai being in his harem i'd sure love to know that detail but the story doesn't give us that but somehow pharaoh connects the dots and realizes hey something's going on here And so he confronts Abram. And the vibe of this is pretty powerful. Notice it doesn't say he sent officials to escort Abram out of the land. The vibe of this is he ran him out. You have disgraced yourself. You have shamed yourself. You have wronged me. You have put my integrity into question. Get out. And so he does. And so he goes Back to the promised land. It says, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. God has shown him incredible grace despite his choices. I mean, think about this with me. He protects Abram, makes him fabulously wealthy despite his disobedience, protects Sarai and Lot. Now let's just go down that road just a minute. Didn't God promise, and this promise will be repeated over and over, that the promised one, the chosen one, the promised seed, the promised offspring, who's gonna come and be the redeemer and set all wrongs right and restore shalom is going to come from Abram's line. Have you thought about what would have happened if Sarai would have gotten pregnant in Pharaoh's harem? That very promise was endangered by Abram's actions, but that doesn't happen. And Abram gets Sarai and Lot back safely. And so he goes back to the promised land, and could it be that Abram is recognizing God's grace in his life, that God has blessed him despite his broken, selfish, sinful choices? I personally think that's what's going on here. And the story ends really the way it should have started with Abram seeking the Lord. And he has come back to the Lord. He has repented and turned back because I think he has recognized God's grace in his life. And there's no question that he will be a changed man. Doesn't mean he won't make other bad choices down the road and still default back to sin. But it does mean With what we'll see next week, this is a different man because he has been touched by the grace of God. Did he deserve it? No. That's why it's grace. Does anyone deserve it? Do I deserve it? No, and neither do you. But it's so easy for us to think that we do and to act like we do.
Because we live in this culture of entitlement that is so focused on self, we are constantly being told that life is all about us. And that when crisis comes into our life, we get our nose bent out of joint. It doesn't mean we should like it. But what did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but what's the best part? What comes right after it? But take heart, I have overcome the world. God is always at work even when you don't see him. And my encouragement with you, for you to be, look for God's grace and his work in your life. I've shared this with you a, a couple of weeks ago, but Jamie recently encouraged me, my wife Jamie, to start a thankfulness journal. And I've done that at periodic times, and, and so is she. And so I started this thankfulness journal about four weeks ago. And I don't write in it every day, but most days I do. Some days I write in it multiple times. But last week, I sat down and I looked through the whole thing of all that's happened in the last four weeks, all the reasons I have to be thankful, or at least some of them, with what God has been doing in my life. And I have to be honest with you, it is a practice that is changing my life. Because rather than focusing on what I don't have, I am now consistently, consciously listening to the Spirit and remembering and thanking God for what I do have. Instead of focusing on what's wrong, what isn't going your way, what is difficult, how about you focus on the grace of God and what you have to be thankful for? And if you and I begin to do that, it begins to change who you are. And once again, it begins to anchor you to the promises of God. So as our worship team comes, and as we respond to, to God's word once again together, let me leave you with this. What do you have to be thankful for? Just one thing in your life right now. What do you have to be thankful for? Let that drive, fuel, motivate what you are about to sing. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith to trust what you say, to believe your promises, to recognize your grace in our lives, and then to be thankful as you call us to be. Lord, thank you that you are the God who always keeps your promises. You promise to never leave or forsake us. We never face any fear, legitimate or not, alone. We face those fears with you through the power of your Holy Spirit. So would we believe that? Give us the faith to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And that's what he wants. He wants us to have a heart after his. I don't know what you're up against this morning. We all have fears. Some legitimate, probably most not, but it's still fear. And he promises to never leave or forsake us. And that's one of the many reasons why we can face into our fears is we don't face them alone. We have prayer teams up here up front. If there's anything we can pray for you about, if there's something you're up against, we would love to pray for you for that. But he asks us to follow him and to trust him and obey him. And I want to leave you with these words from Hebrews 11, which says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This God is real. He does exist and he 
wants to bless you and he wants to reward you for trusting and obeying him. So I want to pray that blessing over you as we prepare to go from here. Lord, thank you for this sweet time of worshiping you, of growing in your word together, of you revealing yourself to us once again. And God, thank you that you are the God who continually calls us out of Egypt and calls us back to your promises because you stand behind those promises and because you love us and because you want to bless and reward us. So would we believe that? And as we go from here, would your spirit lead us? Would we have opportunities like Nancy did to tell other people about you? And would we be bold in doing that? Because you are the one true God. You are the God who can be trusted. You are the God who is faithful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. God's blessing on you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.